Matt Kahn is a speaker, author, and spiritual teacher. We chat about the hidden limitations of self-improvement, how to love and transform negative emotions, and the nuances of being led by your intuition rather than your ego. Wonderful to have you. I've enjoyed your books, as I mentioned earlier, so much. <laughs> um, I came to you through a self-improvement, self-help lens, which Oof. I didn't recognize at the time, but through reading your work, there's some spiritual assumptions that go into self-improvement. Mm. And as I read your stuff, it was that there is, the basic assumption is that there is something wrong with you right. and that through enough focus and punishment reward activity, yes. you can shape yourself into a person that you imagine that is better than you are today. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> I just want, when I read your stuff is one of the few things that I encounter that has a very different set of assumptions that I have found quite liberating. So mm. I would, if you, if you wouldn't mind, just talk about that, the old paradigm and, and sort of what you're sharing more of in your work. Sure. And again, thanks for having me. And it's, it's, it's a true honor to connect with you. And mm -hmm. I, love, I love what you just said and how you distilled that. I think that in so many ways, personal growth has been a way for the ego to either attempt to repair itself or to reinvent itself. Mm -hmm. And so when the ego is trying to be a better ego, when the ego is trying to heal its hurtful past, we often use our ego to try to heal the wounds that only exist while we identify with our egos. Now, of course, ego is not something to reject. It's not something to abandon. It's not a bad thing. It's just a part of who we are, but it's not the totality of who we are. Mm -hmm. In the same way that a parent can see themselves in their child, but a parent doesn't lose themselves through the identity or journey of their children, hopefully. Yeah. And so when I came into this field, and I'm just bringing the information that I'm channeling from source, and I don't have the earthly education like a lot of people do. I'm just literally being educated by my own awakening journey and channeling these things that I say and standing outside of myself and listening. And I came into this field thinking I'm going to meet with all my fun little psychic friends. And we're <laughs> going to meet in the clubhouse and we're going to have a fun time pulling cards and doing readings. And I came into this field and it was like I was speaking a foreign language. Mm. And what happened was, is that I've had experiences throughout my life where the source of our true nature, divine, divinity, is pure love, is pure wisdom. The wisdom is never more wise than love, and the love is never um, more important than wisdom. It's mm -hmm. equally wisdom, equally love. And so when I came into this field, it became very apparent to me when I started looking at other paths and paradigms to say, okay, the next step in this journey is actually helping people to reinterpret this whole journey from the lens of wisdom and love. And that when we are trying to work on ourselves, we're often in a state of self-control. We're trying to gain control over the things that we think represent pain. And we're trying to make room for things that represent pleasure. And we think that whenever I'm in pain, I must be missing out on pleasure. And all of these things that happen when it's our ego trying to do the personal work. And of course, as we know through the awakening of consciousness, the healing journey is helping us create emotional space for more of a greater consciousness to awaken. And as we awaken, it brings to the surface all the healing that needs to be looked at, faced, and felt. 
But in a lot of ways, it's about an awakening of consciousness that brings us into a new identity beyond the ego. And so when we're trying to work on ourselves from the standpoint of the ego, it becomes having many things to work on, many things to chase, many things to understand. And we are kind of trying to think our way through a process what is actually trying to open our heart to an entirely new reality of wisdom and love. Mm. So having read and encountered a lot of your stuff, I'm... Mm. I, and I admit to a deep skepticism of source and of all, you know all of these words. So my, I just want to slow down for my audience. Yeah, can we unpack ego, source, yes. awakening, sure. a lot of those things? Because I think that some of these ideas are going to—they're self-improvement people, a lot of them—and yes. I think that these might be like, what the heck is that? <laughs> I love this. So I think ego, if we want to understand it, ego. We can think of ego as the imaginary identity of an overactive imagination, mm -hmm. that we tend to use our imagination to cope with the reality we can't understand or to cope with the pain that we haven't learned to process. And so an example of what that might feel like or be like on the inside, what would that so, be? So an example of ego could be, hmm, could be as an example from my own life. Mm -hmm. When I lived in emotional turmoil and I empathically would take on the pain of my family mm -hmm. and I would hide in my bedroom because I didn't know how to interact with my family because I was trained to believe that I had to keep these people happy so that they would either treat me nicely or I would be hurt less often. So and making so, plans for how you can behave to get right. an outcome from other people or in the world. You, you got it. So like, for example, when my, when I would get yelled at, even for something I didn't do wrong, I would then go in my bedroom and I would process and I would say, what did I do wrong to incur the punishment of this mistreatment? Mm -hmm. And I, I coped with my family's volatility by concocting a belief like we, a lot of us do in reward and punishment, that if I'm treated well, I must be doing the right thing. Because in the beginning, we're making our parents our God. Our parents are our first example of God. And so many people are distrusting of God because they haven't healed the wounds of making their parents into something bigger than they actually are. And mm -hmm. so when I was in my bedroom and I was feeling admonished by my parents and it was just them blowing steam from a, blowing off steam from a stressful day, I was sitting in my bedroom feeling like I betrayed God. And working on myself as a young child going, what do I need to buffer out of myself to be the version of myself that gets all reward and no punishment? Mm -hmm. And then how, how I needed to be with them had no awareness of what was true for me at a very early age. So it, the ego is our coping mechanisms. It, they are the strategies and the beliefs that we take on to survive turmoil. But what we use to survive turmoil doesn't always move us beyond the pattern of turmoil. And so that's kind of part of the thing with self-help is the very structure that you use to survive turmoil is recreating turmoil in the persona of working on myself. So you can have people that look like they're meditating and they're being critical of themselves. They're mm -hmm. beating themselves up and everything becomes a strategy. Everything becomes some form of manipulation 
And it's all in avoidance of authenticity, honesty, and more importantly, seeing the deepest power that vulnerability has in our lives right now, even when our earliest memories, whereas that vulnerability made us susceptible to threat and made it seem as if that's what caused us to be hurt by others. And so it's yeah. quite a turnaround. For me, I don't know if you experienced this or if you yeah. maintained a, a consciousness throughout, but I forgot that all of that happened for a long yes. time. Meaning it's only in the last six months to a year that I really connected. I was like, yeah, my parents were God. And, and I don't mean that in a simply metaphorical way. They were the creators of the universe who passed judgment in a way that is so far beyond any mortal judgment right. I've ever received. And so losing their favor or upsetting them or being punished by them yes. carried a weight that I had forgotten because it hurt so deeply. And it's right. I'm 30, turning 36. It's when I was 35 that I went, oh my God, I finally have access to that just well of pain. And yes. through that, I, I found for the, only in the last six months, I was a staunch atheist. I like wrote books about it when I was 17. <laughs> I had the first chapters ready. It's only in the last six months that that relationship is opening up for God. me. And uh, I, I suspect people in the audience might be feeling that. So I just want to translate a little bit because you are yes. so, you're so grounded in this, this world that is, might sure. be different for people like me. I love it. I began, yeah. And together this conversation is really just offering a new way that, you mm -hmm. know, there's, there's nothing wrong with working on ourselves, but I think we have to define what working on ourselves really means. And I think you so beautifully stated, it's really about pulling up the floorboards instead of trying to move in more empowered, more empowered furniture onto our living room mm -hmm. floor. We're actually pulling up the floorboards. We're actually pulling up the pain that's been suppressed. And we're actually looking at what's underneath all of this. And can we actually make connection with our pain? Can we make connection with the emotions that don't feel comfortable? Can we, instead of negotiating how to turn one thing into another, can we actually find the parts of ourselves that are begging to be loved, perhaps in a way other people didn't know how to or couldn't as often as we needed to? So really, this is really an invitation into love. And so everything that I offer even though, as you say, I'm very grounded in <laughs> a vernacular, and I so appreciate this conversation immensely, really this conversation is, can we set aside a need to improve and see the parts that we think need to change as begging for a love that only we can learn to give it? Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. The the underpinnings of self-improvement have many of these things that are not okay. And I can tell you from <laughs> 10, right. 15 years of practice, not living in gratitude, not living in abundance, feeling resentment, yes. being angry, being jealous, yes. any of these quote unquote disempowered states mm -hmm. are meant at best to be avoided and at yes. worst to just be pounded out of <laughs> you by transforming them. And uh, I've, I've been reading a lot of your stuff, and I, I don't know what the title of the book is because I've read them several times, but there's <laughs> one that goes into several of these emotions and what they might actually be communicating instead. Yes. So I think it might be fun to just talk about some of these. Uh, sure. Let's start with, well, wherever you'd like, any of, the, any of these most wanted list of bad emotions that we can, <laughs> that we can dive into. Well, you know, it's funny because you're probably talking about everything is here to help you. Yes. And here, here's the funny thing. I've written four books, four best-selling books, and- uh, done so many YouTube videos, 
been teaching for 18 years and I can't remember most of anything I've ever said. So if I say it today, I'm probably going to tell you new things I've never said. Wonderful. But, but, but let's actually approach something that I think is really important for people to hear that might kind of throw a cannonball into the spider web of the mm -hmm. conventional self-help. Because I love the way you're distilling it. Because I didn't come from a self-help background. I came from a very mystical background mm -hmm. where I have come from having these really big spiritual experiences since I was eight years old. And so I've only known what I teach based on my interactions with like meeting angels and talking to things that people will look at me and go, that is imaginary, you know, and these kinds of things. But okay, so let's, let's get into it. Let's talk about something that I love unraveling. There is a belief and, and there's a lot of people's businesses who rely on this belief that there's an existence of something called resistance. Mm. I'm here to say resistance from a spiritual perspective, which is when seen from the laws of the universe, doesn't actually exist. Resistance only exists on the level of ego because the ego is the one that believes it has the power to interrupt the power of the universe, which is kind of a lofty, weird, double-sided belief, right? I am the, so, so the ego gets to believe I am the reason for my pain, right? In the self-help, if I'm the reason for my pain, I can be the solution for my pain. So there's that weird double-edged thing. In truth, there's actually nothing, uh, there's nothing called resistance. When people experience resistance, it means they're having an awareness that this is something that they're in the process of transforming. What they're trying to accomplish in the goal, like let's say it's, I need to be grateful all day. And they don't feel grateful all day. And they say, I feel resistant mm -hmm. to being grateful all day. That's actually the universe saying to us, you are building a relationship with gratitude, but you're still trying to do it with your ego. So it's not that you're resisting gratitude. You're using the wrong part of you. And you will, you are sensing like a sneak preview that through divine timing, you will become, you'll become a person in the future who will be naturally grateful. But that's once your ego is integrated instead of thinking it's in charge. So everything that people think they're resisting, and there are a lot of people that bully themselves and bully each other professionally and say, if you don't do what I need you to do, you're in a state of resistance mm. and it's a power over technique. The truth is, no one's resisting anything. Everyone's becoming aware of what is motivating their choices. Everyone is always moving in the direction of expansion. And everyone is getting a sneak preview of the way they're going to be when they see their journey through, through harmony with the universe, instead of trying to control it. Mm. And so... There's this, there's this belief that I must be resisting if good things aren't happening to me. I'm trying to be grateful like someone told me to do and I can't quite pull it off. I must be in the way. Mm -hmm. And as always, whatever we think is in the way is the way. And so it's this very interesting wall the universe creates that we run ourselves into. And it helps us stop trying to control our circumstances and start to turn inward and say, can I see my emotions as teachers instead of enemies? Mm. Can I build a different relationship with inconvenience, with discomfort? 
Can I stop judging myself as being in resistance? And can I actually see that this is all a setup to wake me out of limiting beliefs and to help me see a greater plan that life always has for me? And this is what's awakening in every human being, especially those who are steeped in self-help, which is an entry point. <laughs> it's an entry point, but we are going way beyond entry point. Yeah. I, I think I I'd like to share one that uh, seems apropos. Yeah. <laughs> I actually was doing a breathwork this morning. And one of the ones, because I was just reading your book and, and wondering, yeah. like, what are these these things that I'm in such denial of that I'm not even aware of them? And yeah. one of them that came up was skepticism. And I was like, yes. what is the teaching of skepticism? And what, what came for me was... Um, it's the part of me that says, I want the full experience and I'm not going to settle for being told about it. I'm not going to settle Good. for watching a podcast about it. I want the full, you know, non, non-resistant as we just talked about. That. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I want the, the whole enchilada. Is the, right. And so in reframing, not just even reframing, because it, it, it happened a bit more effortlessly than that. When you approach skepticism or resentment was another one that I've worked on in the past and say, what is the resentment here to show me rather than right. saying, get rid of the resentment. For me, that one was about the depth of hurt and pain that I carried, which showed me the size of me. I had thought of myself in a much smaller way. And when I was like, yeah. oh my God, I can hurt so immensely. It yeah. showed me uh, that it was through that that I was like, oh, I feel soul. I feel sp I feel these different parts of me that just aren't contained in uh, the limited person that I had experienced myself as prior to some of these most challenging emotions. Right. I love everything you're saying about this. I love being able to say to skepticism, thank you for being the discernment Mm -hmm. that guides me towards direct experience and not settling for a concept to either affirm, deny, or overthink. Mm -hmm. That's really what skepticism is helping us do, is to become discerning. So if you're skeptical about something, even if you're skeptical about something that's really in your best interest, that just means I haven't learned enough to know why it's good for me, which by the law of divine timing means this is a time to consider it, but not to act upon it. And maybe I'll act upon it later, but I'll act upon it later when my discernment says yes instead of either no or I don't know. And, and I think what a deeper teaching to offer is that when people are making decisions, I don't know. If you hear the phrase, I don't know, you don't hear yes, you hear a no, even though it's spelled differently. <laughs> so what I say is I don't know is a no you haven't learned to trust. And so skepticism mm. is a gateway into discernment. And discernment is where we trust our intuition. There's no fear of missing out. If it's a yes, it's a yes. If it's a no, it's a no. And if it's an I don't know, it's a no I haven't learned to trust. This is a big one. I'd like to underline this, because yeah. particularly in business. I've had people just with their different phrases. If it's not a hell yes, if it's, an, <laughs> it's a no. And the for me, what I see standing has stood in the way yeah. is that FOMO, that what if I don't know enough, right. I'm being too judgmental, too hasty, too quick. And right. to really go with, if it's, I know what a yes feels like. Right. And shy of that, we're better off with a no. Right. <laughs> Anything shy of, of a hell yes needs to be just a, right. not right now. Right. Well, and, and when I talked earlier about the self-help is about the ego trying to make itself a more skillful ego, when you awaken in consciousness, you're, you're not giving up your ego, you're just no longer identifying and leading with your ego. 
mm-hmm. right? It's kind of like there's a puppet on your hand and your puppet has its own personality, but you don't always need to wear the puppet in order for the hand to function. So like when you're in business and you're run by your ego, the rule of ego is if I don't know, I continue to say yes until it's a no, right? <laughs> if I'm on a first date with someone, even though I'm about to get married, say you're, someone's on a first date and they meet someone and they go, I don't really know that this person is anything that I really resonate with. Why don't I keep saying yes until I'm sure they're not for me? <laughs> or they meet on the first date and you go, hey, pleased to meet you. And in your mind, you go, absolutely not. And then mm-hmm. your ego goes, don't judge. Give them a chance, even though they're holding an axe for whatever <laughs> reason at the dinner table. Who knows why? And so when you're in your soul, when you're rooted in your connection to the universe, one of the easiest things is making decisions is not hard because it's not, it's not entirely up to you. It's just in this moment, it's either a yes, a no, or an I don't know. If I have confidence, it will be a yes or a no. If you're really confident, it's yes, and there's anything other than yes. Mm-hmm. When you're really skillful. And when you're, when you're growing and evolving into that trust, there's no, and there's I don't know. And you learn I don't know means no. And if it's meant to be a yes, you're telling the universe, bring it back to me, mm. packaged in a way that I can trust it, see it, and feel it. So when we say no, we're saying not this version. And we're actually interacting with the universe as co-creators. And the biggest fear is if I say no, it will never come back. Mm. But we're living and operating without the awareness of divine timing, without the awareness of miracles. And I understand if people haven't experienced that, they don't know how to let that in. But we're not doing this all alone. If none of us remember using our smartphones and GPS to get ourselves out of the womb, (laughs) there obviously was some sort of help. None of us are going to use our smartphones and GPS to, to, to exit this body. We obviously have some help. So if you have help in birth and you have help in death, you got to assume there's help in between. Mm. And so we start to just slow down and open up to something greater than our insistence, our assumptions, and our beliefs. It's not all up to us. We're a part of the process. And even if someone has realized, oh, but I am the divine, The divine is less of a realization that you are it and more of how you move in cooperation and harmony with the universe. So the the realization is more of a verb than a noun. And it's really about how can I take action in my life, but from a place of harmony, from a place of alignment. And can I see that if I say no or I don't, you know, if I say no to something, if it's meant to be, it will be repackaged in a way that will cause me to say yes. Mm. So I find myself in a stage of developing that trust, yes. uh, which is to say, I don't feel it all the time. <laughs> right. So, what are I don't know if there's practices or yeah. what does that phase of developing trust look like, and how can I sink more deeply into it? Well, I think that we, we think about moments in your life when you, there is a yes, and and observing the process. And replicating it. So for example, if we went to lunch mm-hmm. and we were sitting there and you're looking at the menu and you glance at the menu and something jumps out at you and maybe your intuition is silently saying, because your intuition always speaks through a language of silence, saying, hey, you're going to order the, uh, the salad. And you go, let me just look at the whole menu. You read the whole menu. 
And at the end, you figure out it's going to be the salad. And then the server comes up and says, here's what the special is, but you still wind up ordering that salad. When we go to restaurants, we have a sense of what resonates with us. Mm-hmm. We don't have a feeling of obligation that if I say no to the daily special, the server walks away not feeling special. We know how to make decisions. And so I like to think of how to make a choice as I make choices as if someone's offering me a cupcake. Matt, would you like a cupcake? I either want one or I don't. And I make every decision in my life like that. I make Mm. decisions like when I'm going to a restaurant, I may survey all the options. I may know exactly what I want on the menu. And even I may I know what I want on the menu and not even hear the daily special. Maybe I want to hear the daily special for whatever reason. But the way I make decisions at a restaurant is actually the clarity and and the conviction I make decisions in my life. I also have a lot of systems of intuition in my body that are telling me yeses on many levels, and a lot of us will develop it. But part of the initiation is you have to learn to say yes and no with very limited information Mm. in order for you to kind of develop the trust and the ability to have these confirmations. So when people need the most confirmation, they have the least access to it. They have to learn to trust with the little information they have. So if it's a yes, it's just what is. If it's I don't know, that's the new no. Most Mm. people have yes and I don't know, I don't want to lose out. What I like to say also, what I think will help a lot of people, is if you get to the reason why behind your answer. Like, for example, my life is run by ethical value. Yours is run by ethical value. And all of us there's a certain percentage of our life that's run by ethics. When your, run is, when your life is run by ethics, you're run by your intuition. So for example, if I have a no that I'm not, like if I hypothetically had a no that I wasn't sure was really a no, I would mm-hmm. say, well, what's behind my not sure? And if I said to myself, I'm afraid of missing out on an opportunity, Well, then the question is, am I willing to make a decision that makes more room for fear in my life? My ethical value doesn't fund fear. My ethical value only funds love and connection and courage. So if an I don't know is is really a campaign for fear, Mm -hmm. I can send fear love. I don't resist. Well, we don't resist anything anymore (laughs) because I destroyed that. But I don't fight fear. I say, I love you for showing up. Thank you for making me more skillful, but I can't fund this decision that's only going to build more fear. Or sometimes we get a yes and we say, well, what's the reason for the yes? And if the yes is, well, I'm afraid I'm going to miss out if I don't say yes. Got it. That's not an energy that I fund. So I think for a lot of there's us- There's a depth to this that is not yes. just words. It's not just yes, no, yes. I don't know. There's a, there's a deeper interrogation of like, what is, what is the energy behind these words? Yes. Okay. And so I think if we really understand the, the, the reason why we're learning to make decisions, we're learning to make decisions because when we say yes or no, it's because of the energy behind the choice. So I'm saying yes in the name of courage, not yes in the name of fear. I'm saying no from a place of trust, not no from a place of weakness. Mm-hmm. And when we are saying yes and no for the right reasons, then those decisions move us into greater alignment and give us greater access to our soul's infinite capability and capacity. 
And so we don't have to actually know if I feel a yes or a no. We say, if I'm leaning to a yes, what's the reason behind it? And is that the value that I want to fund with my choice? If mm. I'm leaning towards an I don't know, what's the reason I'm so tentative? And do I want to fund that? Yeah, that answer is a question that was arising for me because I Good. know that I've, I've flipped those and gotten yeses from fear and I've gotten I've no's from those that were based in fear that could have been and probably would have been better as yeses. Right. If Isn't they were, that funny? If they were courageous, yeah. And a lot of people will teach that you go with your first instinct. Mm -hmm. Well, we have to ask ourselves, where is that instinct or impulse coming from? Like some people say, I'm going to be present and I'm just going to follow my first impulse. And, and it's more of an impulsivity than a grounding into the now. And so mm -hmm. I think this work, the insights we have will part clouds and make sense of life so instantaneously. But I think some of the way it's being taught, you know, with no offense to the way it's taught, because we have to take the first step before we're ready for the second step. But I think it oversimplifies the complexity of life. Mm -hmm. And I think that it tries to rob us from the need to think our way through lives and to really step back and say, this is so meaningful. Let me just take a step back and let me feel deeper into the moment. And I think what's really more important is we need to, people need to learn how to access their skills, how to feel into a choice, how to recognize the importance of a choice, and how the choices we're making are a part of self-care. And the more we're caring for ourselves, we're equally healing the memories of being mistreated by others. And that's really an important point. Mm. You had mentioned, I want to give you another sticky one. You had mentioned <laughs> ethics, and this is yes. something that's been coming up for me. I yes. would say, uh, for I've been a pescatarian, and I got there through sort of a mind, you know, it's not nice to animals, even though yeah. I don't necessarily feel a heart connection. I know that that's not the right thing to do is to mistreat an animal in a factory Absolutely. farm, so I'm not going to eat that. Right. And then lately, my gut has been telling me, I want meat, yes. <laughs> and I get a strong yes from my body but my mind tells me no. And so I'm, cu I'm curious, how do I work with this? Because this has created a lot of inner conflict in me. Well, I love this conversation. I can share with you my journey. And you, Please, know, yeah. I'm, you know, I am someone who goes back and forth between being a carnivore and being plant-based. Mm. It's not from my mind. It's basically my body telling me what it wants. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with the animal kingdom because I can psychically have conversations with different levels of consciousness. And I said to the animal kingdom, and I was plant-based at the time when I said this, I said, look, if you tell me point blank that eating animal products is a detriment to the world, I'm incurring karma, and I am being a ruthless, mindless being by doing it. I said, if you tell me that, I will be the most committed vegan you've ever seen in your life. I said, I really want to know it's true because I have, there's a lot of people that will say, oh, the only way to enlightenment is by, you know, being vegan and all these other things. I said, I want to know it's true. And I, the animal kingdom tell me straight up and I was plant-based at the time. So I wasn't a carnivore looking for, you know, concocting justifications. And the, the animal kingdom said to me, every single being gives their life for something beyond themselves. As long as you are grateful, as long as you are not wasteful, 
And as long as you are making choices that promote sustainability and the most ethical treatment, you're fine. Mm. And I continued being plant-based for two more months because what my body wanted. Then there was a point where my body said, now I'm ready for this. There have also been studies that have hooked up electrodes to tomatoes, and when you get close to picking it, its nervous system reacts. So we're either all good. And then if you think of, oh, I'm going to be a breatharian, I'm just going to breathe in the prana of the earth, then we have to think about the experience of the prana instead of from the highest level of God consciousness, which is, yes, we live on a planet where animals and human beings are mistreated on every level. Uh, resources are being fracked, are being used in wasteful ways. There's a lot of wastefulness on this planet. But the key is mindfulness and the key is sustainability. Now, there are people that are going to hear me say this and they're going to disagree because what they think is what's right for them. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying what I'm saying is right for anyone. I'm saying this is what's right for me and I'm reflecting what's right for me because you have had this question in yourself. And I think what we all have to do is to be able to say, what is my body asking for, for grounding, for sustenance? Because we all have different body types. Not all of us are meant to be raw vegan. Not all of us are built with the same dosha if you're a fan of Ayurvedic medicine. Mm -hmm. We're all unique. And at different stages of our lives, we need different things. And every one of us comes to this planet to give our lives for something bigger than ourselves. I've given my life and continue to give my life for the ascension of this planet, for the betterment of humanity, and for spreading love across this planet until my dying breath. And if I needed to stand up for love and that was risking my life, I would. And that would be the way I would leave this planet because I'm giving my life to my mission. Mm -hmm. And all of us are purpose-driven beings and we're all giving our life to something bigger than us. And so it's being aware of if an animal is giving its life for your sustenance, are we preparing it with the highest amount of love? Are we preparing our food with the highest amount of gratitude? Are we allowing the ingredient to be celebrated and not wasted? Are we eating with the awareness that there's something that gave its life to further our own lifespan? And just having that awareness and coming out of it, at it with more of a Native American thank you and sacredness. And if you want to be plant-based, be plant-based. But I think that the conversation is about one thing is better than the other. And I think what the whole conversation is really about is about how we honor everything as a reflection of divine source energy and how can we interact with it in a harmonious and respectful way and not a wasteful and damaging way. And I think that's a part of a different conversation. And so mm. I, really th I really think it's, it's about listening to your body and saying, right now, this is what I need for myself. And, and with the choices you make in each meal, can you vote? for ethical treatment? Can you vote for non-GMO organic? Can you vote for, here's how I want the animal's life to be? Can I make the vote for how I want all beings to be treated by the choices I make in each meal? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, and I, I have felt that uh, the difference between a factory farm versus, uh, yeah. the, I mean, the, the life of, of an animal is obviously deeply important yes, <laughs> me too. to this, this decision-making process. For me too.
one thing I want to ask you that comes up, because I, I do not feel the capacity yet to reach out and speak to entities or the animal kingdom or anything like that, yeah. is that I imagine the audience and definitely in myself, fear is activated. Because I know that one of the way that my moral system has been built has by been looking at the past and I'm sure this comes from childhood and being like, I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to be the slave owner. I don't want to be the SS officer. I don't want to. And and I feel the capacity to be that, I suppose. And so I'm just curious. Yeah. How do I have that conversation with an animal kingdom? (laughs) And, And for my own self, ask that that question in a way that that I've done my own research and is not just trusting your conversation, which I appreciate you sharing. Of course. Well, I think that. There's, there's many people that want to look at the past, and that's fine if we want to do it. You know, if we don't remember the past, we're, you know, relegated to repeat it, that, or a phrase like that. But I think if we want to look at the past, here's how I look at life purpose, and this may answer your question. Mm-hmm. To me, the only part of the past, and we can look, I mean, again, the past is important, but when you look in the mirror, you look at, for example, when I look in the mirror, I see the gender that my that I identify with, which is being a man, and I see my ethnicity as a Caucasian male. And I see that whether I remember lifetimes where I remember being these evil characters, these egregious people, whether I remember it or not, I come from a lineage of mistreatment, where people that had my gender and people that had my skin color mistreated other people in a way that I never would. And so I look at life purpose as every single day, I am making choices, deliberate choices, to give people around me a course corrective experience of any mistreatment this gender or this ethnicity has caused from the past. So the way I look at the past is that this moment is a chance for me to make better on a past. I don't remember the past. I don't remember being here when Nazi Germany was was taking place. I don't remember being here when children were segregated into different school buses or had to be in different classrooms. I don't remember that. But my skin color tells me I'm here to be the solution to what Mm. Caucasian people did to people of other minorities or ethnicities. I'm here to be a course corrective experience for anyone who's been oppressed by a man or a white male. And I am here to be the difference. And so when I'm interacting with people of all different genders, lifestyles, ethnicities, I'm here to listen. Because even though I'm an empath, I will never know what it's like to live in the shoes of another person. And I want to be the listening that my ancestors never gave. I want to be the tolerance that they never demonstrated. And I want to be the opposite of the behavior of what hurt another person and sickens me when I think about it. So when I think about ethical value, I think of the past as how in this moment am I naturally being a course corrective experience to any person who's Mm. been hurt by a male or a white person from the past. And I take that very seriously. You actually, I'd I'd grab that quote, which you basically just said regarding (laughs) privilege. Uh, And I thought I appreciated that because I think the way that people speak about privilege is a little bit misguided, and you are doing a good job of reading into what is perhaps being asked for on a deeper level, because so many of the conversations around privilege are, 
who will get to have this job or be in this position and and you know what what can we do about that and your approach of I'm not going to answer the surface level question that you're asking right. me about privilege right. I am instead going to demonstrate right. a different sort of love so that you can incorporate that into your life history and experience and potentially through my behavior not through my argumentation right shift how you feel and approach the world from here on out which I thought was very uh, like a Gordian knot cutting, a beautiful way to handle that that thing that has been difficult and frustrating in conversation for me at times. <laughs> well, and thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. And it's been frustrating too, because I think if we really want to get to the heart of everything and be the change we want to see, being the change we want to see is a verb, not a, you know, not, not a narrative. And I think there's so many narrative and there's so many campaigns and, you know, and um, signaling and, and, you know, saying we stand for something, but you know, what, what's, what's really the, the street value of what we stand for. And, and something that I, I was speaking at a couple months ago, I was at the UN for World Peace Day and they asked me to speak and I was really excited and privileged and honored to speak. And I wanted to talk about a word that I learned over the last couple of years. You know, we talked about privilege and the word I learned was reparation. And the word reparation is a word of like paying back a group that's been mistreated from the past. And what was striking me about the word reparation is I started thinking about, you know, people always think about reparation as paying people back monetarily for the damage done to a community or to a group of people. But every single day, every one of us can pay reparation by not necessarily thinking of it as paying money, but paying attention. That we can actually pay attention to the differences of others. We can pay attention to the struggles of others. And just like, you know, we're not here saying, if I can't solve all your problems, then I feel disempowered. We help people by listening to people. We help people by hearing people. And we listen to their struggles without pretending that we have to be their superheroes to take their pain away, but sit here and acknowledge people and say, I am paying reparations for the past that harmed you by giving you the attention that was taken away through being ostracized, neglect, disadvantaged, and disempowered. And the more we lead with listening and understanding, even to say, I don't have the experiences you have, but I can feel the pain even though we have different life experiences. And when mm -hmm. we start to pay attention and we start to listen and acknowledge, that's where we actually start to find that our experiences are different, but the wounds, even though created differently, are universal. And we can start to bridge that gap by paying attention instead of hiding behind our virtue signaling and hiding behind our bumper sticker phrases and I'm on this side and you're on this side. We can pay attention and actually care for a human being and care for someone else's pain as a way of caring for the pain in ourselves that someone else denied or dismissed from the past. Mm. Is there, and I'm in in the newer paradigm yeah. that you're that you're sort of um, forging. Yes, space for what might be considered a more masculine. Uh, hey, get shake shake yourself out of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I know that there's been times in my life where a potentially rudely delivered message had the effect of wake me up out of either a, a victimhood or, or something yeah. that was, was self-inflicted. 
I guess what I'm asking is, uh, you've, I've learned a lot about holding space from you, and I'm yeah. curious about how to balance that with intervention or advice giving or something like that, or if, or if one, if I just just hold space <laughs> and, and get out of the way. Well, it depends if we're talking about for ourselves or for other people. Mm-hmm. I think that when we're talking about holding space for other people, a couple things are true in holding space. One is that we can see people's potential, but it's not our job to move people in a direction faster than they're ready to move, Mm -hmm. especially because what comes up for us usually is empaths, is I can feel someone's pain. I feel uncomfortable because I feel their discomfort and I want them to evolve faster so I can have a better experience of them. Yes. (laughs) That's that's more self-help than it is holding space. Mm -hmm. And we have to say to ourselves, relationships are the bonds we create with people, whether they become our ideal or they stay where they're at. We have to be able to say, do I want to build a relationship if this person never were to change again? There are some relationships where you go, I'm this way, they're that way. On paper, we are not a match. And gosh darn it, I can't help but just, that's my person. So compatibility is an interesting thing. So when it's other people, it's I'm here to be with them on their journey. I can give them options if they ask for them, but I'm here to love them as they are as they figure out what they need to figure out. I'm not here to do the work for them. And if I don't want to be with people when they're not the way I need them to be, then I have to start looking at the choices I'm making and how I can be more authentic. Mm -hmm. When it's ourselves, we hold space for our emotions. Yes, I feel this way. Yes, I feel scared. And I love the part of me that's scared. And there's also a part that says, I will give the fear a chance to be seen and heard. Like if you have a child, you hold the child in your arm and you say, honey, I know you're scared and I want to hold you and show you that you have love and support, that it's okay that you feel this way, that it's not wrong that you feel this way. And I'm here to give you the support and the encouragement that you need. I'm just going to hold you for a moment. And then there's the moment where you hold your child and you walk them through a situation they're refusing to go through. Mm Mm-hmm. And so there has to be, when it's ourselves, a balance between really knowing, is this a moment where I need to stop and just give someone the love that they need, a chance to be heard, a chance to be seen? It's, is this my job to just pay attention? And then when we've done that for a certain amount of time, it's now time to also walk ourselves or our youngest parts through the fire of discomfort. Because Mm -hmm. if we don't, those parts learn whenever it's uncomfortable or the way I can't control it, all I have to do is flip out emotionally and I get the reward. And then that innocent part becomes our inner manipulator. Mm -hmm. And so the inner child is what grows up to become the ego because the ego is basically the Halloween costume the inner child wears trying to figure out how to have its needs met. Mm. So we have to give ourselves loving attention and we have to know when it's time to be loving from a fierce place, not unkind, but love from a fierce place says you may not want to be uncomfortable and you may feel as if discomfort is harming you, but we're moving through this for a higher purpose. I'm loving you through it. I can help you through it. I can't help you avoid it. That's not maybe something you say to other people, but it's something we say to ourselves as we move through life. Mm. 
I also, well, you can uh, perhaps offer some feedback to me. I, yeah. I have found that there are people, and I've and I've had to see that this is not everybody, but there are people yeah. to whom I am, you know, my girlfriend or people that I'm in a relationship with where we have either explicitly or implicitly over time <laughs> given one another permission when it's felt to say, hey. <laughs> sure. It's, you know, to, to give a gentle um sort of what you would offer to yourself. Like, we're going to walk through the discomfort now. Are you ready? Yes. And and when that permission is given either explicitly or energetically, I have found that to be uh, really nice in those relationships right. that, that either they can wake me out of something or I can give them a nudge out of self-victimization and, and those sorts of experiences, which does seem to does seem to work. And I don't know if you have any uh, addendums to that. <laughs> well, I think that what you're doing is you're offering consent. And I think the difference okay. is that most people are trying to help people more than people have consented for. Yes. Yes. So, or when people say, please help me, what they're saying is, please hear me. Mm -hmm. And what we think of is helping someone is moving them out of the environment we think that's causing their pain. In truth, environments don't really cause pain. And again, the addendum to that is I'm not talking about abusive situations. Mm -hmm. Abusive situations are never justifiable. We don't stay in abusive situations to practice self-acceptance and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But when there's consent in an intimate partnership, like I'm about to get married in a couple months, and my soon-to-be wife, I call her my wife already, we, we do this work together. Mm -hmm. And so we have moments where it's like, hey, honey, I really just need to be held right now while I feel this. And sometimes the way we do it is we'll say, okay, let's just love each other through this. And by this date, we'll take action. Mm -hmm. And so we actually set dates. Mm. From this time to this time, let's give ourselves all the love and support that we need. And on this date, and we both in tune in intuitively, how about this date feels good? Does that, does that match the time we need to make this decision? Or let's say we're making a decision on something we're going to do together. Well, we have until this time to make the decision. So let's set a date that on this date, we'll know enough. If it's still an I don't know, it's a no. If it's a yes, it's a yes. And then we'll check our math and say, well, why is it a yes or an I don't know? And we'll just make sure we're doing it. But we'll give ourselves all the support we need. We'll set a date, just like we have done in our marriage. And on the date, we agree to commit. We agree to commit to a choice. So what you're saying absolutely works. What I'm saying it works. It's just a matter of what what works is consent. And when yeah. you're in an intimate relationship, consent can be two people working through something together. It's just when it's supporting friends in our lives or even trying to support the healing of our intimate partnerships. It's about what we're willing and agreeing to do together versus one person trying to move another person in a way that may not be natural for their evolution. Yes, I, that has been a huge lesson, has been listening and beyond <laughs> just the words, because sometimes people will say yes and energetically not consent because they like the reputation of being someone who's in the growth <laughs> or whatever That's it is. That's right. But being able to more deeply listen to like, what is the opening that is available right here in yes. this conversation has been a... Uh, a lifesaver. It is also one of the things that I carry that maybe some of the audience has that I'll just share is I had mm -hmm. felt like I had to do everything that I could in every interaction to if the boat was sinking, I had to be like, all right, we're going to plug the hole. We're going to get it. We got we to gotta do everything and to listen much more carefully and be like, look, my destination is the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> this boat is intended to sink. That's right. And, and go, oh, 
there's there's no request here. There's no opening, and therefore, uh, you know, either I love you, or if this is not right for me, I need to step away from this. And that has been a huge uh, shift for me in the last year or two. I love that, and I and yeah. I, I, I love that insight. You know, and something else just that comes up intuitively as you say this. When my wife and I make decisions, it's not just I get a yes and you get a yes. The, the discussion we have is you say yes and I say yes. Do we believe each other's yes? Mm. And so a yes is we say yes and we believe and we feel each other is coming. We, we, we believe what we're feeling while the other person says it. And so we may have a yes and a no or whatever it is. And we may say, well, by this date, we'll make a decision, but let's love each other. Maybe we'll process. Maybe we'll kind of explore a little bit. But we, we make decisions not just on the yes, but believing and feeling the truth of where the yes is coming from to make sure that we're both in the same level of alignment. And so, you know, that that lets my wife and I both be very curious explorers and we both are fully supportive of each other's journeys. Neither one of us think we're beyond any amount of inner work and not really much comes up for us other than supporting ourselves and each other through whatever is next to be seen, felt, heard valued and processed and and she and i together are 90 i'd say 100 we're always on the same page <laughs> we, we make the easiest decisions in the world mm -hmm. but we're also totally up for any kind of process where we need to step back and be with ourselves and be with each other and and to allow that to really actually bring us even closer together mm. i want to ask you on the topic i, I took a quote yeah. from i believe Again, I'm not going to remember the name of the book, but it's one of the ones that you wrote. Nah, uh, <laughs> I can't remember any of them. Couldn't um, tell you. <laughs> so this is on, on the topic of masculinity and femininity. And mm -hmm. I, I felt that there was depth to this that I maybe wasn't understanding or yeah. just coming to. Um, that yeah. the masculine, when integrated with the feminine, instead of a timeless defender of truth, becomes a devoted servant of love. Yeah. And that seems to imply that almost love is like a super ordinate value to truth. And I know I've been very truth oriented in my life. And I'm curious if you could unpack that a little bit. Well, when the masculine is integrated with the feminine, mm -hmm. right? The masculine mind and the feminine heart, right? The feminine heart is only acting in its patterns because it's separate from its beloved mind. And the mind is only acting so neurotically because it's separate from its beloved heart. And so these are, these are soulmates that are coming mm -hmm. back together. And so when the masculine mind is en route to becoming conscious, but is still in its patterning, it will play out its patterning in the name of a greater good. So a dastardly evil villainous character, which just means absent of consciousness, will play out its pain on you know, innocent bystanders and hurt people will hurt people. When the masculine is not hurting innocent people as a way of trying to destroy the innocence that it feels it's past destroyed and playing out that kind of really warped reality, the evolving masculine, right, will, will still believe in the value of retribution, of punishment, mm. but it will believe it's justified because it's trying to punish more egregious characters in the name of truth yeah in the name of truth which Got is where it. we get this really weird thing in this day and age where all people need to do is feel justified and they will act out of value that is less than the highest divine truth mm -hmm. and we can bring up all sorts of the most criminal things in the world 
And there's no doubt that things need to be stopped. And there are people on the ground floor stopping a lot of incredibly egregious things that are happening in the world right now. But on a fundamental level, being at war with something you're against is not making decisions and choices to stand for what you want to see more of in the world. Mm -hmm. And the on route to becoming conscious masculine is how our unconsciousness masquerades as a rescuer. You know, in, in, there, there, there's a very well-known triangle that's called the drama triangle. Yeah. And when you are in some kind of unconsciousness, you're either the victim, you're either the bully, or you're the rescuer. And what happens in the world when people don't know this is they're just oscillating from one archetype to the other. And if you're interacting with narcissistic-like characters, they're embodying all of them at the same time. And mm -hmm. so you go from being a victim to being a bully, and then the bully thinks it's on its journey of redemption by being the rescuer. And then it's being the rescuer to other victims or attacking other bullies. Mm -hmm. And it's just rotating through the drama triangle, and it's not actually really moving any energy. Mm. And so really, when the masculine is integrated with the feminine, yes, we're not here to live in a world where people are mistreated, abused, trafficked, and all of these things. There are people who are meant to play their role on the ground floor, rescuing people and eliminating that behavior, right? Our job is to take people out of positions in whatever way that allows them the ability to damage other people. None of that has to do with assuming force or being in a conflict. It's about what change do I want to see in the world and how can I embody it? If you see in front of your face a way for you to step forward and to end something that is wrong, you will be called into that moment of heroism. But there are a lot of people in this world who are talking about what needs to end and they're not looking at what's in front of them. Like, what role are you here to play? What are you here to affect? And what's right in front of you where you can be the change that you wish to see? Because not all of us have the same role. And so... It's a very, very sophisticated system where we have people in this world that think, if I'm doing it in the name of a greater good, it's less karmically complicated, mm -hmm. and it's not actually true. And the sophistication of love is that love, dressed up as every person, will endure every blow from unconsciousness. Unconsciousness will manipulate, it will steal. And it will deceive. And all it's doing, it's wearing out its own energy until in a very short period of time, considering unconsciousness will have employed every strategy, every tactic, thrown every blow that somehow love has endured and survived. And unconsciousness will get to a place where it has literally no energy left but to collapse and surrender to the love that won this battle without throwing a single shot of retaliation. That's what's going to change this planet. That's the plan already unfolding. That's what each and every one of us has a chance to actualize by choosing it. But that's the path that's going to actually win and change the world. And the temptation is we're going to get there faster by doing to others what they've done. And that just keeps 
this whole thing swirling and it keeps progress on pause. Mm. I'm wondering if we can. So one of the things that comes up as you as you talk about all that is like yeah. politics and the world at large. And yeah, uh, it's such a huge space of such incredible and painful things. And you you mentioned in that that response that the question more of what's in front of you yeah. rather than yeah how how do you interact or advise people to interact with the broader world uh, because there is such a huge world out there and it, mm-hmm. I could easily get involved in the Uyghurs in China or animal rights or or any right. number of things and of course right now here we are talking and I'll have a right. handful of other people in my day to day with is it is it too small to limit myself to what shows up right in front of me? Ought I, ought I extend it to a broader world? How do you think of this huge thing that's going on in our interaction with it? Well, I think it's a balance of both, of course. Mm-hmm. I think the most immediate thing is that, like for example, in any moment where someone spends a lot of time behind a keyboard talking about what's wrong with the world, mm-hmm. that's a person who can afford to say, what's in front of me? Like if someone's going to be on a keyboard talking about the starvation of the planet and they have cans of food that are still good for seven more months and they can, instead of being in front of a keyboard, go to a food bank, like maybe we should make sure we're just doing everything we can in the immediate. When it comes to giving my attention to bigger organizations, I personally want to make sure that the organization that I'm supporting is actually making meaningful impact in the direction that calls to me. Each and every one of us have something that calls to us. Mm -hmm. So for example, if it is human trafficking, I want to make sure that if I make a donation or raise money, I want to know how much of that money is actually saving people versus administrative costs. I know everyone has their own costs. I know everyone has to run businesses, but I want to know that what I'm doing is going to affect things in the most direct way because it's most meaningful to me. Or if I give money to a food bank and I do this all the time, We work with food banks who can show us for every dollar you give us, here's how many people are going to be fed over the holiday season. And we literally have a direct impact between raising money and we just spent this much money feeding these many families during the holiday season. So from my perspective and the way I live my life, I am always in environmental and situational awareness. I am always looking around and I'm saying, Where is the course corrective experience I could offer that makes the most sense? Where can I affect the change that I want to see? I don't experience judgments of other people. I look for opportunities to be a part of everyone's family. I look for opportunities to be everyone's ally, to be everyone's friend. You know, whether you recognize me from my videos or I'm just some (laughs) funny guy you meet on the street, I'm always a helping hand. That's just how I live my life. And when it comes to giving my time and attention, I'm not personally interested in the political arena. I'm interested in philanthropical progress because I think that the imbalances of the world are about a distribution issue. I think there are a few people that have a lot and there are a lot of people that don't have have much of anything. And I think it's about redistributing resources. And I think if we were to look at an a neighborhood, for example, that we want to kind of reduce the violence. You're not going to see me suggest that we go into this neighborhood and get people to put their hands on their heart and love themselves in the first (laughs) breath. We're going to go into that neighborhood and we're going to feed people, we're going to clothe people, and we're going to give resources to show people that the others 
are here to support you, not to be against you. Mm. And we're going to give resources so we can bring down the walls of defenses. We're going to share meals together and we're going to bridge the gap that way. So for me, I always look at the ground floor progress is a socioeconomical issue of distribution. And it's about making sure that we all have access to clean drinking water, to fresh organic food, to education, to clothing, so that we don't have to live in survival mode that urges people to have to live in a lawless way to get their needs met. And then people can start thinking from their highest consciousness. Then people can actually start trusting their ethics. Then people can start moving from their value. They can start dreaming again. Mm. So for me, this is all very much a philanthropic issue. And it's actually something that we're going to resolve on the level of community and unity and not by, by the representatives that we vote for like we're all choosing sides in a football game. That's just how I see it. I believe I just want to check. What I also heard in there is that yeah. while my mind might like rank order, okay, this is the biggest problem, the second biggest problem all yeah. the way down. You're saying that we, our individual hearts will call us towards maybe yes. not the number one thing on that list, but as you mentioned, you know, the fact that you might be there at the food bank yes. is there is more being delivered than just the calories in the food if your heart is in that particular thing and maybe it's somebody else seeing you there and having a different experience of someone that, you know, they didn't think they could trust in the past. Right. Got it. Well, And one of the reasons we heal our hearts of our pain, because if you're walking around with unprocessed pain, you're not aware of the opportunities where you can be helpful. When you're not aware of the moments where you could be helpful, you are still plagued by helplessness. You're walking around the world going, who's going to help us? Why is the world falling apart? And we're actually not seeing opportunities to be the help we want to see in others. So one of the reasons why the necessity of emotional healing exists is because when you are not repeating your past in your subconscious mind, when you're not in limbic loops, you are situationally aware of how you can better a moment instead of fear being taken down by a moment, you can then be the change that you want to see and you can be a course corrective experience for any individual and you are being called to affect what is most immediately in your reach. Mm -hmm. And the paralysis is that people think, I can't do it all. But there's billions of people on the planet. We all have a life purpose. And if each of us did the smallest thing right now, there would be no problems to solve. So we each play a part. We're all in doing it together as one. And if we want to heal the wounds of feeling like we're not doing enough, we do more. And when we get exhausted from doing more, we rest and someone else takes our place. And we're all going to solve this together. And we have to really start trusting that we're all doing it together. There's only so much one person can do. Not one person can do it all because it would rob other people of their purpose. Mm. Does your so you uh, have a lot of confidence in like the metaphysics of what's sort of playing out here yes. in terms of does that? Well, I have two questions. One, I want to yeah. broadly know your metaphysics, but two, yeah. like I also am, I love watching videos of the meta crisis and how nuclear bombs are going to destroy the whole planet and all this kind of stuff. Right. And so I'm curious, does your confidence preclude that sort of an outcome because you're just like that's not how this story goes or right yeah I, I, what 
what do you think about the the end game scenarios? Does how does your spirituality inform your approach to that? Well, my connection to the universe is that the metaphysical laws of the universe are more real than the world we live in. Mm-hmm. That this is a chessboard, and we are all on this chessboard because this is a field trip. Where we're all actually being trained to be spirit guides and angels for future you know, classes of incarnating souls. Mm -hmm. So this is actually a training program that we're in from heaven. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know people hear that. It probably sounds, you know, very lofty, Mm -hmm. but this is my actual lived experience in helping people leave their bodies, watching them go to the other side, seeing their loved ones. And for me, it's a very, it's as real as an experience as me talking to you right now. Mm -hmm. And when I hear things like the end game, you know, the nuclear war, the this and the that, a couple of things strike me. One is that's actually a possible timeline if consciousness wasn't always in a state of perpetual expansion. Now, people's egos will say, my consciousness isn't expanding unless I say it is. Well, that's not really true. (laughs) Everyone's consciousness is expanding just like you're taking many breaths a day, whether you think you're in charge of it, whether you're ignoring it or paying attention. The more you pay attention to your breath, the better you feel. But if you don't pay attention to it, your body is always breathing, your heart is always beating. So our consciousness is always expanding. The world is always becoming a better place. That's not apparent to a lot of people because you have to start waking up out of attachment to your ego to see the actual progress happening on the planet. Mm -hmm. And then there are people that want to stay in control who benefit from marketing catastrophe because if you're run by fear, you're less likely to trust your intuition and more likely to trust a sales campaign that is being sold to you. So that end game would be totally true if consciousness wasn't always expanding. And if in a quantum field, the end game hadn't already been created, we're living in a movie there are parallel timelines. The end game is already decided. We are just deciding which timeline we take to get there. Will this be a psychological thriller? Will this be a courageous return of the hero's journey? Or will this be, um, you know, the a scariest, rom-com. you know, a rom-com? <laughs> will this be a Pixar film? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we are deciding how often we're in our hearts how much we love ourselves, not by trying to bastardize gratitude and I have to be loving. And especially the teachings that say you have to be a certain way or else you're not going to attract what you want. I could go for hours on that. Mm -hmm. That's not true. The truth is we're already loving beings. We're just learning to remember the love that's always within us. We're learning to trust it. And you learn to trust love and to be situationally aware of how you can bring love to another person's life. A person who is probably, you know, in their cellular body carrying mistreatment from either your gender or your skin color or something from your lineage. And that we become aware of that as we heal our wounds by not trying to get rid of them, but by seeing them as parts of ourselves that deserve to be loved. And everything that I teach has nothing to do with a metaf- metaphysical campaign. It's literally a returning to love. And the people that say, I'll love when these people get off our planet, that's fine. But those are people that we will love too. Those are people that have a purpose. And those are people that need to act out violently to get the violence of the collective out of its system 
to make space for a greater love to be seen and a higher truth to be known. Mm. Well, thank you. I, every uh, every answer you have sometime, somehow has a way of being more <laughs> inclusive than I, <laughs> than I <laughs> can find a way to, uh, to think of before you start answering. And I will say to anyone, I, I heartily recommend, I, I know I read first Whatever Rises Love That, and yes. that was very valuable to me. Um, and then I've since, I can't even remember the names after that. They all got confused in my head. For me too. <laughs> who, who even knows what I write? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but have enjoyed all of your books and, and so appreciate yeah. you taking the time to, uh, to talk with me today. Where can people go to find more of what do you recommend? What's a good entry point? Cause so much of your stuff is, yeah. it, it forms a circle, a lot yeah. of it. Like it, it's not a line. And this is right. one of the things that I struggled with. Like, how are we going to talk about all of this? Cause it all, <laughs> it all refers back to other parts of itself. Yes. Well, that, because that's what life is. Life mm-hmm. is life is a circle. Life, it, it's a continuous, ever-expanding fractal. I would say, you know, the books I wrote in order are written in order for a very deep reason. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have four books out. My most recent, All for Love, The Transformative Power of Holding Space, mm-hmm. How to Communicate While Being Aware of Our Wounding and Someone Else's Wounding, um, or Starting with Whatever Rises Love That. Um, really, it's it's it, I always like people starting with whatever rises love that mm-hmm. seems to be the greatest entry point for people. And also, you know, if people go to, you know, mattcon.org, they can sign up for our free newsletter. And we're constantly sending out free content and ways for people to learn this new way, because I'm not asking anyone to believe something foreign. It's this is a new way. I'm saying a lot of new things, and there's more than just me saying a lot of new things. There's a new way for all of us to learn and grow, just in the same way that we had to relearn high school when we got so used to middle school. And Mm. and so this is just, there's a new evolution on this planet, and it's an opportunity for all of us to really settle more into our hearts and to heal in more of a radical and progressive way. And so if people go to matcon.org, Sign up for my free newsletter and start with whatever rises. Love that. Um, I, I think that the difference it will make will be surprising and it will be felt instantly. Yeah. I'll also give a shout out to your YouTube channel. I know that you, you oh, seem yes. to talk about whatever it is that comes up for you. And yeah. you just did, I was working with intuition and you just did how versus what masculine yes. versus feminine intuition. I thought that was fantastic. So thank you. Uh, another hearty recommendation for me. But and Matt, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. Thank you so much.